This is Rainbow's podcast, the creative mindset. Hi, everyone. This is Rainbow, the founding partner of Ionco, a global innovation firm based in New York and Tokyo. Welcome to the Creative Mindset, a podcast about the art of building a career through conversations with the world's leading practitioners of creativity. It's an intimate journey on how they got started, their turning points, failures, and tips on work and life. Today's guest is Dr. John Maeda. He needs no introduction, especially for those of you who are in design、uh, and/or technology. I met John 25 years ago when I was a student at the University of Michigan. I randomly emailed him one day wanting to meet him because he was creating the kind of art and design using technology, specifically programming, and I was mesmerized. By the work he was releasing at the time. This was in the 90s. And I think it was my second year in college that I discovered his work. And I was so fascinated that I emailed him randomly, like I said. And to my surprise, he emailed me back and asked me to come meet him. I took a Greyhound bus, I believe. And you know, spent hours getting to Boston, where he was at the time at the MIT, at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And he gave me some time to chat, and the rest is history. So we get into that early part of my relationship with John and how I didn't meet him for close to a quarter century and what kind of influence he had on me. The first part of this conversation with John goes into what he thinks about creativity and how he became what he calls a bridge person and the kind of perspective that he has not only on work but、uh, on life and how he lives the professional life as well as the personal life that he has. So let's get started. Okay, John, it's good to see you. Wow, this is so good. So, I just want to start by saying or recalling the first time that we met. And、um, it's going back more than 20, 20 years, I think 25 years almost, back in 1998 or 1999. I remember there was this strange Japanese guy who <laughs> came by. I thought, Wow, he's a good looking guy. Like, first of all, this <laughs> took out. And, like, okay, so he's got some ideas and he's doing something really hard because many, Jap- many Japanese stopped going international and they were stuck in their country. And I was so impressed how, like, wow, this guy like, left Japan. It's so hard. When you speak Japanese, you don't want to speak any other language. And that impressed me. I was an art student at the University of Michigan. And you were already、uh, a famous designer slash technologist doing all these interesting experimental digital art at the MIT Media Lab、um, Aesthetics and Computation Group, if I, may, if I recall correctly. So I think it was during my spring break, I trekked from the University of Michigan to Boston to visit you at the Media Lab. But you gave me two pieces of advice.、Uh, one was you need to get better at design,、uh, specifically typography. And in order to do that, you should just walk around, look at the street signs, and that's how you study typography. 
That's what you do. The second thing is, is you should learn programming, you know, learn how to code. And then you apply to uh, the MIT Media Lab. I, I said that same thing, uh, not the typography one, the coding one, to maybe a couple hundred people. And very few people took my advice. I think the meeting that we had was only about 20 minutes uh, or so. And if that, and I went back to the University of Michigan, and then I added computer science as my second degree. So I got two degrees, you know, took an extra year to graduate. I think I apply, I did apply to uh, the media lab when I graduated, but I didn't get in. Yeah. But, you know, that, that, uh, that advice that you gave me, I took it to heart. And uh, that became sort of the central theme for my career loosely. So, you know, just wanted to start by saying thanks for giving me the advice 25 years ago, I think. And, uh, you know, you were my mentor and hero from afar. You know, at the time I thought, Tadamono Janai. <laughs> so I kind of knew. <laughs> I was, then I was like, later on, I was like, oh my gosh, this guy is so famous. Wow. So anyways, I, I admired you from afar and what you achieved. And uh, so I'm glad that we've been able to reconnect this way. Yeah. Thank you. Well, thanks for your kind words, John. You're Japanese American. You grew yeah. up in, in, in the US. Yeah. Well, um, you know, I was born and raised in the United States. But my my father made tofu, so I was the son of a tofuya, basically, which most um, Americans cannot relate to. First of all, um, you know, in the seventies, nobody knew what tofu was, uh, so I had a hard time fitting in as a child because of that. Yeah, well, um, I think the advantage of growing up in a tofuya is that you know my parents didn't know what I could become. But they remembered that the customer who would come with a nice car was an engineer at Boeing. So they thought, oh, if my son becomes an engineer, he could have a nice car. So that was the basic logic their day, that nothing deep at all. So you go to MIT and it was like, huh, so I'm good at drawing and I'm good at math. And so at the time, the computer had just become visual, the Macintosh became real. 1984 is when I went to MIT. So people who could do both visual and code were very rare. So I would always be asked to design icons because it was a very rare skill on campus at MIT. And the problem of being young and scarce is suddenly your head gets very big. Your head gets very big. Like, oh, I'm a, maybe I'm a tensai at this kind of thing. However, my graduate work was already very focused on technology. I worked on semiconductors, so chip design, the physics inside the silicon. So I had gone from software down all the way to microchips. And so I was way down in the, in the stack. But um, I remembered uh, I finished my master's and I thought maybe I want to do this design thing instead. So I switched and I went to the Media Lab, which at the time had a design program led by a woman named Muriel Cooper at the Media Lab. Muriel Cooper said to me, you have to go and learn art and design. You cannot come here. So that's why I never went to Media Lab and I did art school instead. Well, actually, I was at the Media Lab for one year as a PhD student, but my advisor left. He was a image coder person. 
And so nobody, I had no advisor, so I could stay if I wanted to. And I said, oh, I want to work with Muriel Cooper. And she told me, no, you cannot work with me. You have to go to art school instead. <laughs> uh, so um, uh, there was a research foundation being founded in Japan by Nichidai. It was an MIT Media Lab collaboration. So I went to work in a research foundation there. Uh, and I was a researcher. Uh, but I wasn't going to school. I'll tell you why. Um, so I was at the research foundation. It was led by someone named Dr. Sasaki Tadashi. He was the co-founder of Sharp Electronics. And so he was already retired and very important, kind of like a mitokomon of innovation <laughs> kind of thing, whatever. And uh, so I was working there. I was doing my research, whatever. And he, he called me to his office one time. And he said, you know, Maida-kun, I think you should get your PhD. You should finish your PhD. And we will pay to finish your PhD. And I said, really? Like, do I have to pay you back? He says, no, no, no. I want you to learn. So I was the recipient of this strange benevolence of the mitokomon of consumer electronics. <laughs> and that's what I went to Tsukuba to get my PhD. What was your, what was your impression of Japanese designers at the time? Well, well, first of all, I, I know that being like a, a kind of like a nakama hazure or like you, you don't fit in, you know, first I'm American, first of all, but I look Japanese. And then secondly, um, I'm not a designer, I'm an engineer. So my impression immediately was not of design per se, but every culture likes to build a wall around itself. You're either like me or you're not like me. So my immediate entry to that world was, oh, I'm not like you, so I have to learn. So I studied really hard. I think I know more about the Bauhaus than any person sort of at Tsukuba. <laughs> I studied so hard. Bauhaus, Ulm, everything. I did all the traditional pencil, pen, you know. Um, and so I learned. And then I finally got the respect of some people that, oh, maybe he can, he's a designer now. But I distinctly remembered I was at a party in Japan, and it was a design party. And I think I think that people thought I didn't understand Japanese. And this guy said, this guy, oh, that's John Maeda. He thinks he's a designer. He's an engineer. That's all he'll ever be. But I understood what he was saying, so it was kind of funny. Um, but I, I like those moments, because as you know, when you're challenged, you say to yourself, I'm going to beat you. <laughs> And so it's funny how years later people think I'm a designer, but I think really back then nobody thought I was a designer. So how did you how did you become a designer? Tell us a little bit about that process. And you went to Tsukuba to study uh, art and design. Uh, I didn't really get along with Japanese people because uh, the Japan I knew was a Japan post World War II. So. I'm like making tofu, whereas a regular modern Japanese person is way beyond that. They're in the salaryman world and beyond. So I remembered when I went to Japan and I was able to study design there, all the old designers love me. Like uh, I remember uh, Tanaka Iko-san loved me because he was like, oh, this is, he, he's just like us when we grew up <laughs> because, because he came from the world 
of merchants. And so all the people who are 70, 80, they love me because they were like, oh, you're like the old Japanese type person we used to know. Well, it was really, it was really easy because I'm a son of a Tofi a son, right? So, so for some reason, like Tanaka Iko really liked me. He was like, oh my gosh, you know, you're like the old style Japanese person, even though my Japanese wasn't perfect. And so he really took me under his wing. And then, as you know, in Japan, when that happens, everyone doesn't mess with you anymore. <laughs> and so, you know, uh, and he, he was curious about my work. Um, another person was um, uh, Katsui Mitsuo. He was like a great friend because he was also curious about my work as well. Um, because he, these, these people knew that I liked their work that I studied the Bauhaus, I understood where they came from. So I felt home among those people. And so in many ways, I was a translator of that generation is what I see, is what I had the opportunity to do. There was, you know, there was Macintosh, especially you know, starting in 1984 and it was becoming more visual. But yeah. I, I remember the computers were quite limited. You know, it was still a lot of it, it was still black and white. And even if there was color, it was like 16 colors or maybe 256 colors. So tell yeah. us a little bit about that beginning where well, you transitioned uh, or transformed into a designer. It was really easy because uh, the universities have no money. And so they have no computers. So I didn't use a computer. It was just like all by hand. And uh, I stopped using email too. And uh, I remembered I was in the drawing class and I had this moment where I realized I was reaching for the undo. I was reaching for undo, but there's no undo. So I remembered like I had to change my mental model of digital into analog. And what's nice is that, you know, when I was just a programmer, I could build anything, but I didn't know what to build. But after the design training, I knew what to build. So now when I was coding, I could build what I wanted to build easily. Um, tell us a little bit about your transition back into, into the US. Yeah, well, it was the, it was the mid 90s and um, uh, the internet had happened. So the work I made could be put on the internet. When Java came out, I created a bunch of pieces for Shiseido that were dynamic. When Sony.com emerged, I designed Sony.com's web pages, the front page, which as you remember at the time, that's all they had, the homepage. Um, so this that kind of stuff. And then uh, Muriel Cooper died in 1995. And then so um, there was a kind of a search for someone to carry in her kind of footsteps. So you were brought back to MIT Media Lab. Well, you know there were there was an open call, so I remember responding to the open call. So then, so I got the offer, and when I arrived, I wanted to work on this mixture of code and something that is visual, something that is artistic. It, it, it's hard to remember, but you remember where nobody thought the two should be connected. Nobody thought that code and design are, it's two different worlds. People felt so strongly about that. You've been uh, an educator 
for a long time. You've taught many, many people either directly at MIT Media Lab and Rhode Island School of Design or indirectly, like, you know, a young guy like me who just walks into your office and shows you printed books. If you are being asked by an engineer or quote unquote, you know, this is a, a, a stereotype, but a, a non-creative person, how do you teach them creativity? Well, first of all, I, when I was at MIT, I realized that I, in a thousand engineers, I can find 10 that are interested in art. If I talk to a thousand artists, I can find a hundred that want to code. And I think now it's got to be out of a thousand, it has to be around 300 now. But still, I think engineers don't want to create art. I think business people don't want to do that as well. Um, so I think that's the kind of numbers game that exists. Business people have discovered, quote unquote, design thinking. Um, engineers have discovered front-end engineering. So there are flavors of that that already exist, so, and, I, and I think that's fine. I think the bigger question, however, is why are artists and designers more divergent than the convergent business people or the convergent technology people? It's because they suffer more. Because artists and designers are better equipped to have empathy for others because they feel things about themselves. And through that, they feel problems. And as we know, the root of all interesting design is a good problem. So I think the problem with business people usually is that they have had no problems. Uh, or engineers will solve the problem very quickly, but it's a technical problem, but not an emotional problem, usually, if they're lucky. I think artists and designers solve emotional problems their entire life. Why? Because they're strange. They're different. They're not convergent. So, you know, but it's like, I don't know how to do that. <laughs> I'm an artist. I cannot be shikarishinasai. I can be shikarishinasai about making art, but in general, society bothers me because I can feel it. So that's the difference. What emotional problem why do you think you are solving then? Oh, for me, like I'm a great example of a bad example. You know, as someone who's a, I, I'm, I'm like a highly functioning autistic type person uh, who is very low on affect, I can find things around me to sort of feel. And I think years later, um, I wish I was as good an artist or designer as you are. I mean, you talk about comparing yourself to to others. I'm like, oh man, I can't do that. <laughs> I can't do that kind of thing. But I feel very comfortable in that uh, I am a bridge person. Uh, you know, like when I was at MIT, uh, I, I discovered that I didn't understand business. So I got an MBA. And so I went to Kleiner Perkins to work in venture capital. I wanted to understand all this, you know. And so I can speak fluent business, you know, like yourself, speak fluent technology like yourself. Like fluent design like yourself. And I think that this kind of bridging thing, um, I don't have any problems, but I see a lot of problems in people around me and I get to help solve those problems. I think you have the same curse because you understand why the designer is upset. You understand why the engineer is upset. You understand why the investor is upset. You understand all their problems 
and you get to be the bridge. That's a good thing. So to be a bridge person, you have to be comfortable being the door and the doormat. What that means is you open the doors for people, but you're also the doormat. People walk on top of you. <laughs> so, so you have to have a kind of boldness and a kind of humility, knowing that this will happen. Many bridge people get tired because they're the doormat. And the doormat is a very un, unexciting part of the job, but it's necessary. That was part one of my conversation with John Maida. So I'd like to share three key takeaways from my chat. Number one, being a bridge person requires you to be a doormat. Number two, artists suffer more. And number three, give time to the younger generation. My key takeaway, number one, being a bridge person requires you to be a doormat. One of the things that John mentioned about the way he built his career and the role that he has played first somewhat subconsciously and now he's playing this role more consciously is for him to be a bridge person. Either in terms of his profession, he started as an engineer and he later became a designer that allowed him to be a bridge between technology and design. And later, as he grew older and he became aware of his own heritage as a, a, an Asian American person in the United States, and especially when he went to Silicon Valley, he said that uh, he became more aware of the fact that there weren't um, diversity that he was used to at other places. But the point that stood out for me and that made an impression specifically was this idea of being a doormat. A bridge gives you a nice image of you being the person to sort of carry one perspective to the other perspective, but also uh, you have to be willing to be stepped on. And that is not necessarily a nice image per se, but I thought it was really refreshing for me to hear from such an established person as John to say that he's willing to be a doormat so that people step on him to get from point A to point B. Sometimes, you know, you feel the pain being a doormat, but that is uh, what you have to be willing to, to do. And especially as you get older, um, I think you have to be willing to sacrifice a little bit of yourself to give room and space for other people to succeed. So that was point number one, being a bridge person requires you to be a donor. Key takeaway number two, artists suffer more. What he said here was that artists and designers solve emotional problems. You know, we feel more pain, perhaps because we put more emotion into the work we create. And a lot of the work that we create is based on, of course, you know, certain skills that we, we have as artists and designers, but we put a lot of ourselves into the work, um, you know, the feelings and emotions and a lot of uh, our life experience into the, into the work. 
And as a result, what we are trying to do either directly or indirectly is to solve emotional problems that other people might have. To do so, uh, we may need to suffer more uh, in order to, to get to that, that, that output. I think I knew before hearing it clearly from John, but when he heard it, it clicked with me the fact that artists do suffer emotionally and personally in order to create what they create. One image that came to my mind when I heard this, uh, this uh, phrase from him was the, paint, the famous Dutch painter Van Gogh, you know, Vincent Van Gogh. And, you know, he famously cut off his ears in, uh, in the later part of his life, which I think was in his 30s, so not that old. But he wasn't mentally well. You know, he was even admitted to a mental hospital and uh, towards the end of his life, before he took um, his own life, that he cut his ears. And that just creates a very painful image in me, but that also highlights the kind of suffering that artists uh, uh, do go through. And, you know, I'm not saying neither uh, was uh, John that artists need to suffer more in order to create works of art. Uh, it's just that, that we might be a bit more sensitive to our own pains as well as other, other people's pains. Finally, key takeaway number three, give time to the younger generation. I randomly emailed him, you know, a quarter of a century ago because he was somebody that I didn't know directly. I just knew his work through the internet. And to my surprise, he replied back and he gave me time to come meet him. And it may have been only 15, 20 minutes of the time that he gave me, but, you know, he gave me much more than that. He gave me advice that I took to my heart and I followed. And that had an enormous influence on me that I didn't know until much, much later in my career, what kind of difference that few minutes that John gave me had on me. And now that I'm probably, well, actually, I'm actually older than he was when he met me when I was 20 or 21. Um, and I do get from time to time, not a lot, but time to time, random inquiries from random, you know, people, especially young people. And they ask me to give them advice or, uh, have an opportunity to, 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 to talk to them. And to the best extent that I can, I, uh, I actually make a point of responding to these random emails that come from, especially from students and from young people seeking advice, because having done it myself, it requires for young people to reach out to those who are much more established and much, uh, much older than them and to pay respect to that courage that young person has demonstrated. I try to return the favor by responding to every single one of the emails that I get from young people. And the message that I would have to, well, to older people is give that time to the younger generation, but also to the young people is, you know what, it might require you to pull up some courage from yourself to email that random person to, you know, to a famous person, to an established person. And you might not get a 
response from them. But don't be shy. You know, feel free to reach out to the people that you respect and admire, and make the point and take the time to go meet those people. That impact, that influence that you get from them, are unbelievably life changing. And you might not realize at that point, but later on, you will appreciate your younger self for doing so. So, young people, just take just a little bit of courage to email, to call, call people that you admire, and you never know what you might get. Either at that point, and or much later in life. To summarize, my key takeaways, three key takeaways from my conversation with John Maeda. Number one, being a bridge person requires you to be a doormat. Number two, artists suffer more because we solve emotional problems. And number three, give time to the younger generation. And if you are a young person, go meet the people you respect and admire. Part two of my conversation with John Maeda dives deeper into the definition of creativity and what he thinks about creativity, which I found to be quite surprising, and some of the influences that he had from earlier part of his life. So stay tuned. I am Ray Nomoto, and this is the Creative Mindset. See you next time.